and I do a couple different things here at North Wake. I help to lead a ministry called Haiti Love, and I also have just recently, and I do a couple different things here at North Wake. I help to lead a ministry called Haiti Love, and I also have just recently, A, for me, as I try to integrate these two pieces of my life and um, manage all of that with life and family and all that. So uh, it's, it really is a real pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, I hope that this isn't your first kind of integration into what has been happening all weekend, intermission, intermissions. Um, it has been fantastic. It really has just been a great time to learn about what God's doing in a lot of different places and to hear from people that are doing the work in other places and to be able to give and pray. So if, if for some reason you weren't involved in other things uh, this weekend, next year, mark your calendar, try and make some time to do that. It is a fantastic, really just a weekend to genuinely worship God for who he is uh, because of what he's doing in the world. So uh, if you didn't make it this year, Rob, are we doing it next year? All right, so we'll do it again next year. Uh, with that being said, I want to take a moment and thank all of the folks who did all of the hard work to make this happen uh, this whole weekend and all the parts and pieces and uh, everything went off without a hitch. So that means there was a lot of hard, hard work that was done. So I uh, thank you all. Let us pray and ask God to bless our time together in his word and that he would speak to us and that my words would be his words and uh, that he would do his work in us through those words. Father, we do pray. We ask that in submission to you, that as we hear your words and uh, maybe some words that are uncomfortable to us, that we would submit to those that are your words as they come out of your, your scriptures that you have given to us to tell us about yourself. Father, we ask that you would give so much grace to be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. We know that that going from one to the other is your work in our lives, and so we commit to hearing you and obeying you, and we pray that you would give us grace to follow through in that, and God, that you would be glorified in all that is said and done and believed and thought and in the way that we respond to your word. We love you, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if I asked you this morning to draw me a picture of a heart, most of us would draw something like this. Pretty simple. Um, but if we were to actually draw a picture of a heart, it would look more like this. It's kind of a more realistic depiction of, of what a heart looks like. And so many times we have a conception of what something is that actually it doesn't reflect the reality of it, or we think about it in a certain way that doesn't reflect the reality. Often we have a, a tame or simplistic version of something that's actually much more complex or, or functional or crude. So if I ask you to sketch out a picture of God's heart this morning, what would it be? What would it look like? If I asked you what is at the center of God's affections, what is he about, what is he up to in the world, what would you say? Might you present a, a tame cartoon version of, of what is really functionally and complex, a, a reality that, that when understood gives purpose and, and motivation and, and gravity to life? This is what the Bible is after. This is what the, the Bible wants to present to us, is the heart and character of God. And the Bible can be understood as God's divine self-undressing 
He wants to show us himself in a, in a very intimate and personal way. He is showing us his heart, his desires, his mind, his motivation, what he cares about, and then how he goes about caring about those things, how he executes those desires. And so what I hope to do this morning is to help us think about God the way that God thinks about himself, to think God's thoughts after him. In doing that, I want to focus on one aspect of God's heart that helps us give definition and clarity to many other aspects of who God is. So we'll begin with this, with this principle, that the, the Lord of heaven and earth is a God who is worthy. He is worthy of worship from all types of people, from all types of places, all nations, colors, cultures, languages, ethnicities, or any other category that we could construct. He is worthy of worship from all types of people. And so because that is true, he actively pursues those who would worship him. So a simple way to say this is that he has a heart for all nations, all types of people. And so the way that we're going to go after that this morning, kind of our flight plan, is we're going to look at a couple of passages. Um, we'll be in Revelation, then we're going to be in uh, Titus, and then in Mark. But where we're going to kind of land the plane and spend most of our time is going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So stick with me as we go through these three short little passages, and then we'll really get into the weight of uh, meat of what we're doing in 1 Timothy. So as we think about this notion of God's worthiness, let's look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Uh, we don't have a, a time for a treatment this morning for the whole uh, chapter, the whole passage, but as you remember, Daniel Cresswell, sometime last year, he did chapters four and five, did a whole sermon, handled the whole thing. So if you want the whole shebang, go to northwake.com and give it a listen. Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so if we were to read the whole passage around, we would see this is talking about Jesus. And these, these, these verses, they highlight Jesus' worthiness to be worshipped and to receive power and honor because of his ransoming work. That ransom work that he accomplished on the cross for all types of people, regardless of ethnicity or status, language or location, Jesus purchased all types of people for God with his blood, it says. And he was making them into a kingdom of priests or, or people who serve others on God's behalf. That's what this passage is telling us about who God is, is that he's a God that in Christ is about bringing all types of people to God to be his people from every tribe and, and tongue and language and people. And in Titus chapter 2, we see almost the exact same thing. Paul is, is writing to, to Titus to encourage him in the ministry that he's doing. And in his second chapter in verse 11, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so again, we see many of the same things. We see that God in grace has shown up to bring salvation for all people through the purchasing work of Jesus. He gave himself, it says, to make a pure people, a people out of all the peoples of the world for God's possession that are eager to serve in God's service, to do good works. Paul wants Timothy to understand that God has been up to something. And he wants him to understand that he sent Christ into the world because he had a mission. He was about something. He wants him to understand God's heart and the purpose that he had in Christ and sending Christ. And that purpose was that he would make a people for his own possession out of all the peoples of the world. And that he did that through Christ's redeeming work, purchasing work. And so we see the same thing. Jesus says something very similar in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 44. He says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So if you read around this passage, you'll see that the, the disciples are having this argument about who will be greatest in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus explains to them that he came to earth not to, to be served, but to serve, not to have a great position, but to be a slave of all. And that that reality, it orients all that they should be about. That their job description at some level comes out of his job description. And Jesus gives this purpose statement. He says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. This is his act of great service. He says that he came to serve. So, so how did he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. He became a slave so that many could go free. So, he's teaching them that following him, following Jesus means his mission and work become our mission and work. That what he's up to, what he's about, should be what we are about. So, if we take these passages that we've looked at so far and survey them and kind of try to see some common themes, what do we see? See three things coming out. God's saving work is for all types of people. He is making those very types of people into one people who worship and serve him. They serve the way Christ served. And lastly, this work was accomplished through Christ giving himself, his life, his blood as a payment or a ransom. And so as we, as we look at these passages, God's heart, his mission and his purpose in Christ, it becomes a little more clear to us. So the, the sketch of the one who deserves all of our worship, worship from all types of people, it becomes a little more defined and a little clarified. 
So Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he writes to them, and he's, his, his first letter is to Timothy. He writes to him for a real specific purpose. He says, Timothy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come to you very quickly. So I'm going to write you a letter so that you can understand and teach the church how the church ought to conduct itself or how the family of God should conduct itself. And that's the purpose of 1 Timothy. And so in 1 Timothy, in the first chapter, you'll see if you read it that there's some introductions, there's some really thick theological statements, and then he gets into some very practical instruction in chapter 2 about how the church should conduct itself. And so we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And we, so we see that Paul, right out of the gate, when he wants to tell the church, instruct the church what they should be about or how they conduct themselves, what does he say? He says the church should pray for all people. First things are important things. And so we see that this is an important thing in the economy of the church, the way that the church functions, is that we should pray for all people. And a, this is likely referring to all types of people seeing that the following statement is concerned with praying for kings and leaders, i.e. those who are over those different groups of people. So Paul intends for the church to pray for all types of people, all groups of people, and all types of places. So from, from poverty to palace, from England to Ecuador, no one is outside of the scope of what he is saying that we should pray for. All types of people. And so he gives four aspects of prayer to express that he is talking about something that's really dynamic, a, a dynamic pleading, an asking, a begging, a requesting of God. And he says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Really four different ways to talk about the same thing. And I think he wants us to understand that this is not simplistic. This is something that we have to press into and to, to work at and to pursue. A prayer like, God, bless all the people of the world. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something much more gritty than that, much more practical. And it seems like it's much more personal than that. And so we're asking God to do something among the people of the world that only he can do. And we're asking him to do things we know he's committed to doing. So we've seen in the passages that we read before already that there will be a day where all types of people, that they come under submission to God, that that. Christ purchased them and makes them into one people. That's what he's about. And so we're simply praying that he would do that work. We're praying those types of prayers for all the people of the world. And so when we pray things that we know God is about, we can have confidence that he will do those things. So when we pray that he would bring salvation for all types of people for his glory, it will happen. He will do that thing. Paul also calls the church to give thanks for 
give thanks for all people. So, so he transitions a little bit. So there's a, a bit of a difference between praying for and giving thanks for. And I think that he's doing that because giving thanks for someone is, is it's very personal. It's very, um, it's almost humanizing. So if I have to give, to, to pray for someone in general, I can, I can do that in, in general terms. But if I, have to, if I have to give thanks for them, it makes me seek to be much more specific, to think about how God is at work among those people or that person. And so I think that he's humanizing them helping us to think very specifically about how we would pray for those folks. And so then Paul pushes this a little further. He says that thanks and prayer should be offered for kings and all who are in high positions. So again, it's one thing to pray for that politician that you you sharply disagree with, but it's another to give thanks for him and her, him or her. So you can pray for... um, said politician, said king, said leader. But when you start to give thanks for them, it really changes the way that you think about them. You have to work hard to think about how is God using this person? What is God up to with this person, this leader, these people? And so I think that Paul is pushing us to be very focused and even personal in our prayers, that we would work in prayer So as we reflect on this passage, it seems that that somehow these prayers can lead to a peaceful, quiet, and dignified, godly living. It seems that God intends to direct the political affairs of the the world through, through the prayers of the saints. That us simply praying for all types of people in all types of places and and praying for their leader, praying for our leaders, praying for the kings of, of all those different types of places, that God would direct the political affairs. That's pretty amazing. That, that, that makes me want to pray in confidence for the leaders of our nation and the leaders of other nations. Because God desires to bring peace and quiet and, and godly living that the church might grow up in those places. So the next time that you want to throw your phone out the window after browsing this political news page or whatever you're looking at, you should pray. You should give thanks. Um, I don't think the, the frustration that many of us have with politics and politicians, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So we should get really good at praying for and giving thanks for people that we might even view as our enemies, that are against the things that we're against, that we would get good at giving thanks for them and praying for them very specifically, that God might bring order and direct and guide the affairs of our country or other countries. And so we should pray for political circumstances where the church will flourish. Seems to be what Paul is after here. In verses 3 and 4, we get a a peek at God's heart. We get a, a look at what pleases him. We get a look at what does he desire. It pleases God when we pray for all types of people, different nations and their leaders. When we pray for peace and stability, as a product of our leaders, God smiles. It gives him pleasure. And this is true because he has a desire for all peoples to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all peoples to have a saving knowledge of him and what he has done in the world. And so, 
what is this saving knowledge? What does he want them to know? We see this in verses 5 and 6. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So what is the truth that God wants all people to know? What if we kind of broke this this thing apart and, and looked at it part by part? It could be simply explained in four pieces. There's one God. Relationship, or two, relationship between God and man has been broken, hence the need for a mediator. Three, that mediator is God in the flesh. The man who is the promised Messiah, Jesus. And four, his work of mediation was accomplished at the cross where he gave himself as a ransom for all types of people. So, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth that he is one and man is in trouble and needs a rescuer. He needs a rescuer to bring him to God and that Christ secured that rescue by giving his life as a ransom. That's the message that God our Savior wants all peoples to know. Again, God is showing us his heart. He has an unquenchable and holy desire to be worshipped by all types of people. And this desire moves him, it motivates him, it draws him at great cost to himself to do what only he can do to accomplish this desire. So one may hear this and think that God sounds needy, desperate, or lacking in something. But to think this way is to forget that God is not only worthy of worship because what he has done, but because of who he is. We must begin there. So back in Revelation 5, we saw they're singing this song. You're worthy because you did these things. We don't believe that God is worthy of worship only because of what he's done. He was worthy of worship before he ever created. He is worthy of worship in and of himself. So as we think about God, we must not forget that he is creator of all things, visible and invisible. He is the sustainer of all things. He has dominion over all things. He is the one who lovingly enjoyed fellowship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for eternity, and then created in order to lavish that love that he enjoyed, to lavish that on his creation, who then spurred him by worshiping themselves and by worshiping the creation. Then, after all of this, he sets out on an adoption rescue mission to buy back all types of people and make them one with him where he will be their God and, he, and they will be his people for all time. And if that were not enough, the currency that he uses to make this transaction is the very life of his son whom he had enjoyed that fellowship with from the, from the beginning of time. Our God is worthy of worship because of who he is first. And that worthiness to be worshipped, it's expressed in what he has done and what he is still doing. So he is worthy in and of himself. And that what he's done is an expression of how great and worthy of worship he is. How kind, how loving, how just. 
how powerful, how wise. He's acting all of that, acting out of all of that character to do this thing that should lead us to respond in worship. God is worthy of our worship, and he is worthy of our service. Look at verse 7 in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says, For this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, so Paul says, For this reason I was appointed. So Paul understood that the reason that he was appointed by God to work among the Gentiles, all those people that are not Jews, all types of people not Jews, was because God has a desire that all types of people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that his work among them would be unfolding and explaining the gospel to them through preaching and teaching. Paul understood God's heart and his mission, and he, he understood exactly how he fits into that heart and that mission. And he lived a life that displayed God's worthiness to be worshipped and served and obeyed. He understood God's mission, and he understood exactly how he fit into that. If you've been to a missions conference before, uh, you know that this is the part where I'm supposed to convince you that now you should engage in God's mission, find your place in that mission, right? And the way that we usually go about doing that is by saying you should go, right? That the, the push is to go, even to say intermissions, right? That's kind of like the name of the thing we're doing. We might say, go to another culture, another people seeking the glory of God and good of those through giving them the gospel. But this morning, I hope that, that as we understand God's heart to be fully invested into seeing all types of people becoming his people, that we might ask the question a little different. So instead of asking, should I go, let's ask it a little differently and asking, should I stay? And here's what I mean. Asking the question, should I go, makes the going the exception. So, for example, if I said to you, should I go to church this morning? As opposed to, should I stay home from church this morning? On the surface, they seem to be the same question. But indeed, they're not. One starts from the position of not going and needing to be convinced to go. The other starts from the position of going and needing to be convinced to stay. Each is looking for a reason either to stay or go. So, where are you starting from? And how does God's character and works inform where we should start from? So, is God worthy of us starting out saying, I will go and do anything you want me to do? Is that our real starting place? Are we really starting there? And do you believe God is worthy of that? That type of commitment, that type of yes, that type of I will do anything. Do you believe he's worthy of that? I will go, but if you want me to stay, I'll stay. Or are we starting from, I don't want to go, but if you make me go, I'll go. Those are really different positions to start from. And so I think we have to begin asking ourselves some harder questions. And so just like there's some pretty good reasons to stay home from church, kids are sick, you know, things are blowing up, um, you know, you don't have any clean clothes, I don't know. That one's not a good one, don't use that one. 
there are some good reasons to stay where you are and do God's mission. So for Steph and I, we were, uh, years ago, we were pursuing a career of, of overseas work and mission. And we weren't really exactly sure what God was doing. But we had said, yes, we want to go. Send us. We're here. And all of a sudden, we had our oldest son who was born with a heart defect. He was in the pediatric intensive, uh, intensive care unit for two months was super sick, came home with a tracheostomy. We had all this equipment. We couldn't even go to the store without taking like three different pieces of equipment to the store. So I mean, we could barely go to the store, much less go live overseas. So there's some really good reasons why people would say, I don't believe God would have me do that. Sometimes we start from the place where it's like, I don't like bugs. So clearly God doesn't want me to go live somewhere else. There's some good reasons. Um, and I guess what I'm pressing on this morning is, might we ask some better questions? We should all have hearts that say, yes, Lord, I will go. But if you want me to stay, I'll stay. So here's my suggestion. Let's start asking the questions that people who are going ask. So people who are genuinely committed to, I will go, they start asking questions like, well, what about the kids? Is this a good time in the life of my children? Will this be wise for us to go live in another place among a different type of people? Are there certain specific things with my children where that would not be a good idea, would not serve them? Secondly, what about the money? How will we eat? How will we live? Can I do my job? Can I keep my job and live somewhere else, much like uh, what Glenn Ansley is able to do? This is amazing that God would do something like that. So my question for you is, do you have a job like that? And are you asking God what he might be doing since you have a job like that? You might ask, what about my extended family? Are there real circumstances that would keep us from living in another place or keep me from living in a place? Questions like, who will care for my parents as they age? It may be that your parents are at a certain age where you should take care of them. That you're morally responsible for doing that. And so that may hinder you from going and, and living in another place. You might ask, what about suffering? That, that should be a concern of yours. You should pray about that. And you should pray about how we deal with the struggles and hardships of living in a place that's not our own. You should be praying about that, asking God, what will you do in response to the suffering we might see? You might ask, how is God using us here? How is he using me here? Would he have us? Would he have me stay here and continue the work I'm already doing? Is there a significant thing God's using me to do here? Should I stay? And so I want to press us to ask the questions that goers have to ask God, that we might hear from him about those. And so you might find the things you're really concerned about, God's not all that concerned about. He has a response to those things. He wants to say something to you about them. He wants to answer those but what abouts. In March of 2010, I went to Haiti for the first time, and I, I loved it. Um, I was with a team of people. Most of them were like, this is terrible. Please get me home now. Uh, I was one of the people that was like, hey, let's stay another week. This is kind of cool. So I felt this draw to, to be there and to do things and, and to work, and I believe that was God's work in me. And then in November of 2011, I got laid off from a job that I'd had for a couple of years at that point, and I took that as, as a pushing from God to, to fully invest and fully put myself into 
working among Haitians. And so at that point, though I had this desire, um, my family and I, we couldn't go live overseas because our son was still sick. Uh, we had given, uh, or someone had given us a house that we could live in rent-free so that we could pursue this work. And that was huge for us. You know, I was laid off. This really helped to ease the burden a whole lot. We started raising some funds, pursuing that work. But we couldn't go overseas because my son was sick. And so Steph and I began to pray. We said, God, if you want us to go, you're going to have to deal with this thing with Shepherd. This is on you. So that was around February. Um, by March, he was totally healed of some concerns that he had. So quickly that we were able to go to the Dominican Republic and live in June. So in March, his doctor was like, yeah, you guys can go live overseas. By June, we were living there. Um, so we moved to the Dominican Republic to kind of try out, like, like how would this work? Um, and so when we left in June, I had enough money to get us there. I didn't have enough money to get us back. So we got there, um, and we were renting a 600-square-foot apartment with a family of five. We were there for about three months, and then my niece came to live with us. So if you do the math, that's 100 square foot per person. And so one night, we're all there, um, kids sleeping on the floor. My niece is sleeping on the couch. We're sleeping in this uh, bedroom. It wasn't, it's like, it honestly, it was like one big room, and we're all sleeping in there together. So it's raining, 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 raining outside. And the windows were open because it's super hot. And in the tropics, you want to get as much breeze as you can. And so it's raining, and evidently when the windows were open, this swarm of flying termites comes into the house. Well, I didn't know that because I'm sleeping, and um, we wake up in the middle of the night, we feel stuff falling on our face. And you're like, what is that? So we wake up and turn the lights on, and there are thousands. I mean, maybe hundreds of thousands. I don't know. Like, the place was full of termites. And it turns into like, I mean, everybody just starts going nuts. Because, like, they're all over you, and they're everywhere. And then when you start doing that, they start going crazy. So it was, it was terrible. It was not cool. And so then you're saying to yourself, if you're trying to get me to go, why are you telling me this? Because I want you to know that God showed up. God showed up big time. He was in all of it in the midst of working in, showing himself in all of it, in our circumstances, integrating us into the work that he was doing. And so he answered all of our concerns. We didn't get stuck in the DR. We actually found enough money to get back home. Shep's health concerns were, were no problem at all. Um, we didn't starve. Uh, my wife and I didn't kill each other. Um, in fact, I learned a lot of language. That was the year that I got serious about learning Haitian Creole uh, I met some great contacts, and some of those contacts are actually people who are in the institute that I get to teach at now, some of my students. We got to know God in a really personal way that we did not know him before. We had to call on him for things that we had never had to ask him about before, and he showed up. We said, yes, take us, do with us what you want us to do. And he said, yes, I will take care of you. I got the but what about, and he handled those. And so uh, since that time, we've lived there on and off for two years uh, after that time, and then I travel for the last year and a half. I've traveled back and forth every uh, two months. I stay there for about two and a half weeks to work with our national partners there. And so that, what you probably would say, Noah, you're an idiot. Like seriously, you left and took your family to a place and didn't have enough money to get home and all that. 
you would say you're just an idiot. But God really used that to establish a work that is flourishing and growing and blessing people. And um, that's what I thought God wanted us to do. So with that said, your story and my story are going to be different. But what I want you to know is that God wants to speak to your concerns. He wants to speak to your but whatabouts. He wants you to bring them up. Don't just shuffle them away. Bring them up and ask him about these things. Submit those things to him in prayer and say, what are you going to be do about those things? If I say yes, how are you going to handle this? If I say yes, how are you going to handle this? And so what I want you to do is to watch a short video of a couple of North Wake families, the Davinis and the Ansleys, who have really been working through this but what about process for about three years now. The Davinis much longer. I don't know if you know about the Davinis. They intended to go to the mission field when they were in their early 20s. Uh, they got pregnant, had their first son, and he had massive heart problems, multiple, uh, multiple heart surgeries, so they couldn't go overseas. The beautiful thing about this is that they left their yes on the table for 20 years, 25 years. And they said, yes, we'll go, yes, we'll go, yes, we'll go, yes, we'll go. And then when God did the things to make it work, they're still saying, yes, we'll go. And God willing, by the end of the year, they'll be living in another country, doing a work that they've been pursuing for over two decades. So I want you to see a little bit of their story and get a sense of what God's doing both in the Davinis and the Ansleys to answer those but what about questions. So what if you put your yes on the, on the table and you started asking serious questions about pursuing a life of ministry to a people somewhere else with a, with a different language, different than you? Maybe a people who have never heard about Jesus. What would God do if you did that? For some of you who will say, you should go and I'll show you where to go. For some of you, he will say, stay and I'll show you how to stay here. I'll show you how to stay here and be deeply involved in my mission. Either way, it is God's mission and his heart that takes you away or keeps you here. Not your fears, not your concerns, not the but what abouts, but God himself putting you in a place or keeping you in a place or taking you to another place. His desire, his mission, his heart, his motivation, doing that. I wonder if in a church like ours, in a time like ours, with opportunities like ours, with a God like ours, if staying should be the exceptional thing. Last night, I stood in this room and I saw you all give and, and you gave some more and then you gave some more and you gave some more. And I would say, um, I've done the intermission thing for almost a decade now and watched and been here for all of it. And last night was, there was some lavish giving in, in a way that I hadn't, uh, maybe I don't think I've seen before. Um, like, you know, like Rob said, all of the things that we wanted to fund were funded and more. Um, it was lavish. And so you really do believe that God is worthy of worship because of what he's doing among the people of the world. And you want to be involved in that. But I want to press you in further. Is he worthy of your worship through the consideration of this question? Should I stay or should I go? 
Will you in worship submit that question to him over and over and over and over and over again throughout the seasons of your life? Asking him, is now the time? Is now the time? Have you grown me in such a way? Is my maturity at such a place and my circumstances of life at a place where you would have me go and live among some other people for a season or for a long time or even for a career? Will you submit that to him over and over again? Is he worthy of that? My grandparents and their peers have often been called the greatest generation, large in part because of what, how they responded to the world being overrun with oppressive regimes in, in many different places. Some estimate that roughly half of all American men aged 20 to 49 served in World War II. That means that it was exceptional if you stayed behind. And most who stayed behind still engaged in the fight. Women would grow what they call victory gardens so that uh, food that they were growing kept more food going to the troops on the front lines. That they didn't have to eat that food, it could be sent to them. It's said that 40% of all the vegetables that were grown in the United States during that time were grown in victory gardens. They were serious about the war. They were invested. Children gathered cans and metal to be recycled to be used in the war effort. Many purchased war bonds to fund the war because they believed in it. They believed that it had to be done. And they were unified in mission. And that translated into every aspect of their life. The way they spent their money, the way they spent their time, what they did do, what they didn't do. Whether or not they got gas. How far they drove. It affected every aspect of their lives. Might our generation be considered the greatest generation because of how we respond to a world war for the seven and a half billion souls in the world? Our grandparents, our parents, and our great-grandparents, they ran, they ran headlong into a war that they didn't know if they were going to win. Here's the truth for us. Ours is a war that Christ has won. He shot the first shot, he raised the last flag, and we get the privilege of being part of liberating the concentration camps. So let's put our draft card on the table expecting to be called up. And while we wait, let's do our part in the effort to see the nations come to Christ. Might we have that sort of attitude that then affects all the aspects of life? how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we think about, what we pray about, how we pray. And so I want to give us three small practical things that we can do in this effort. We can give generously. And you guys do that. As a church, you give generously. Um, as someone who leads a ministry of North Wake that has to have money to run, I can say if it was not for North Wake, there would be no Hispaniola Institute of Theology. We would not do anything. Uh, I would still be stuck over there starving to death with my family uh, the first time I went. No, you, you make sure that the work happens because you love the work, because you believe God is worthy of that. And so continue to do that. Let's continue to do that when the next recession comes. Let's continue to do that even when times get hard. And let's be more faithful in doing that. Pray globally. Make a practice to pray for different groups of people and people from other nations. 
pray for our leaders and the leaders of other peoples. One way that you can do this is uh, at the, um, all the tables around, there's little sign-up sheets. Sign up to get people's prayer letters. If you want to pray for and give thanks for different types of people, individuals, and know their names and what they're up to and how you can pray for them, get connected with missionaries and say, hey, send me prayer requests. Right? Missionaries are really bad about this. We're busy doing stuff. And if, if you're connected to a missionary and you don't know what they're doing, send them an email. Say, hey, I want to pray for you. How can I pray? And then if they don't respond, send them another one. Pray. Use all these relationships that we have here with people that are actually living other places, that actually need you to pray for them, and they know people that you can pray for. Ask them. Engage with them. Get their newsletters. Pray for them as a family. Consider soberly. Consider how God desires to use you in his global mission. Whether you ask the question of going or staying, seek God and ask him. Ask him to show you. Lay your concerns out before him and see what he does with those actual real concerns. See how he knocks down those things that you thought were hindrances. That he says, no, no, for me, I've got those. Many times we think that being used by God in his mission means only to go. But remember, from Acts chapter 18, Paul is ministering in Corinth. People are coming to Christ and being baptized. And it seems that he's pondering to stay or to go to another place. For Paul, many times when, when all this started to happen, he would go to the next place and go to the next place. And so it seems that's what he's pondering. And we see in Acts 18, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. God said to Paul, Stay where you are, keep sharing the good news, because I have many in this city who are my people. God has many people who are his people right here in Wake Forest. He has many who are out there to the ends of the earth. And so what I want to press us to do is to engage in God's mission, to bring them in by telling them of Christ and watching him work. Our King Jesus is worthy of this type of service. He is worthy of this type of obedience. He has called us into his service for our joy, for the good of the nations, and that he might be glorified and worshiped among them. Let's pray that God would do this among us.